Virgil and Dante. They're walking across the known universe together. Virgil is the great Latin poet, the great Roman thinker, philosopher. Oh my gosh. The great Virgil. He can do anything, right? No, he can't. Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. In this podcast, as you know by this point, we walk through Dante's masterwork comedy passage by passage. We are in Inferno, we are in Canto 8, we're in the Circle of the Wrathful of Hell, and we are at line 64 through 96. If you're just dropping in here, welcome. But wow, there's a lot behind us. Check out the previous episodes of this podcast. You might have a little trouble catching up with where we are today, but maybe not. I can tell you where we are. Virgil and Dante are in a boat. They're crossing the River Styx in Canto 8 of Inferno. Phlegius is guiding that boat. They have just had a soul come up out of the muck and try to do something, get in the boat, overturn the boat, do something to the boat, threaten them certainly in some way. Virgil's put him down. Virgil's been happy that Dante wants to see him put down. And now they're passing on. So here's the passage, Canto 8 of Inferno, lines 64 through 96. There we left him. I can say no more about him, for my ears were bashed with such a sound of pain that I had to open my eyes wide to see what lay ahead. My good master said, Now, my son, coming upon us is the city called Dis, with its weighed-down citizens and great army. And I, master, I already make out the minarets there, set into the ramparts. Those minarets are as vermilion as if they'd just been taken out of the fire. And he to me, the eternal fire from inside makes them glow red, just as you see in this lower part of hell. We finally came to the deep moats, the outer defenses of inconsolable ground. The walls looked to me as if they were made of iron. It was not until we had first made a big circle that we came to a place where the boatman yelled, Get out! This is the entrance! At the gate, I saw more than a thousand of those who had fallen from heaven, who belligerently cried out, who is this one who without death nonetheless traverses the kingdom of the dead people? And my wise master made a signal as if to say he wanted to talk to them privately. Then they all checked their disdain a bit and said, You come by yourself! But send that one away, the one who came into this realm so boldly. Let him go back along his foolish path, see if he knows how to remain here. You escorted him through this gloomy country. Think, reader, how I got weak in the knees at the sound of those cursed words. I believed I'd never make it back from here. Okay, that's the passage. Is it dramatic enough for you? I think so. Think how many voices are in this passage. Phlegus, Virgil, the poet, the pilgrim. Oh, my gosh. They're all in here. (laughs) The poet steps out and addresses the reader directly. The pilgrim is in here. So the fallen, the demons are screaming. Wow, this is a passage full of drama. If you thought that it was dramatic with Filippo Argenti on the waters of sticks in the last passage, this one's crazy. So let's take it little by little and let's work through it because this passage shows a great turn in the poet's art. 
It starts out, there we left him, meaning Felipe Argenti, being torn apart, ripping himself up with his teeth, doing all that he did in the last episode of this podcast in the lines right before here in Kento 8. I can say no more about him, for my ears were bashed with such a sound of pain that I had to open my eyes wide to see what lay ahead. This is just a little bit of synesthesia, right? Or it's a synesthetic moment in some weird way because the sound is so bad that I have to open my eyes. Why? Because you squint. I guess that is true, right? You do squint at the really loud sounds of pain. And yet the pilgrim is really desperate to see what's ahead. I think that this is also connected to the confusion in the passage. And it starts here after we leave Filippo Argente with a moment in which pain and hearing and sight and widening vision and all kind of collapse into one thing. And Virgil speaks up and says, Now, my son, coming upon us is the city called Dis. Dis. Another Roman name for Pluto, the god of the underworld. From here on out in Inferno, we are in, well, outside of the walls of, for just a bit here, and then after this, in the city of Dis. We've been coming here from all the way from that landed country estate in Limbo through the hostelry of pain with Minos to here. And we have come to the walls of the city, the ramparts, which they need to get through in some way. Later, we're going to find out that Virgil is going to lay out hell as a three-part division. And he's going to kind of give us three different pieces of how you can think through what hell is. This is coming later in a future episode of the podcast on Down in the Cantos. But right now, what I want to say is one way to think about hell before Virgil introduces that to us is that hell takes place inside and outside of Dis. That part of Inferno, there's the Cantos that lead up to Dis, to these walls, and then there's the rest of hell inside of Dis. And there is a way to think about this, to think about what happens before Dis and after Dis. Now, I know we haven't gotten into after Dis yet, so this doesn't make too much sense. But let me just say that the sins before Dis, Francesca, Jaco, even the greedy, the avaricious popes and priests and cardinals and the hoarders and the wasters, and even the angry and Philippe Argenti, all of these people didn't have themselves under control. Filippo Argenti is so mad with wrath that he tears him apart. Francesca, with her lust, is so out of control that she's blown about on the winds and Dante faints in front of her. All of these are lack of self-control in various ways, spending too much money, keeping too much money, etc. From here on out in the poem, the sins of hell are going to become not matters of self-discipline, but actually matters of malice and the will. The, 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 the matters in which you don't, it's not, you're not going to be a sinner because you couldn't keep yourself in check. You're going to be a sinner because you chose a certain way to be. And you chose a certain way, well, to just play all of my cards before the end of Inferno. You chose a certain way to diminish your humanity. But Right now, all I can tell you, looking here, standing at the walls of Dis, this city, is that there are seems to be the sins of, well, self-control and now much worse sins, sins in which the people sinning knew exactly what they were doing. So Virgil calls his attention to this city 
called Dis. We should know. You should know. The city of Dis is in the Aeneid. In fact, Aeneas and his guide, the Sibyl, come up to the walls of Dis. And we find out that beyond the walls of Dis lies the pit of Tartarus, which is full of the very worst criminals. But more about that in just a moment. So they come to the walls. Virgil says, you know, essentially, behold this. And I, master, I already make out the minarets there set in the ramparts. The word may be mosques more than minarets. I took it as minarets because it seems to me that they're towers on the walls, like a medieval tower and fortress, and so a minaret is more like a tower. The word might be more clearly mosques. Either way, Remember, I made that big deal back in limbo about putting Islamic figures in such high esteem in limbo. Well, if you thought that Dante escaped Islamophobia, here's the passage you can point to to say, no, he doesn't. Because the walls of Dis are full of minarets or mosques, and they're glowing red. Just think right here of the raging fires of xenophobia at the beginning of the Age of Exploration. Here they are. They're burning right in front of you. Are you made out the minarets? They're set in the ramparts. The minarets were as vermilion as if they've been taken out of the fire. And Virgil then goes on. The eternal fire from inside makes them glow red, just as you see in this lower part of hill. Hell, here we come to the fires of hell. We've waited for the fires of hell. Isn't hell supposed to be all fire? We've waited for the fires of hell and we've come to them now. It appears that this city is glowing red from inside, from the fires of hell itself. Yes, there was a fire in limbo, but there was a fire that was more like a light. It lit up the dome of the cave, the ceiling of the cave. It seemed more like a light over that castle and the green grass and the clear water and all of that. Now this doesn't seem like that. This seems, ah, what, Voldemortish. This seems Mordorish. This seems like that kind of place. Terrible, glowing red, lower part of hell. They come to the deep moats, the outer defenses of inconsolable ground. The walls look to me as if they were made of iron. Ah, again, from the Aeneid. The gates of Dis in the Aeneid are said to come from the Cyclops' furnaces. That is iron. Iron. They're said to be iron themselves. And in fact, when Aeneas and his guide, the Sibyl, arrive here, this is where they stop. Aeneas does not get into Dis nor any farther down in the afterlife. Instead, the Sibyl explains that beyond lies the pit of Tartarus and all of the really horrible criminals down in that pit. But you know, we're at Canto 8. We're, <laughs> we're not even halfway through Inferno. There's lots of Inferno to go. So guess what? Dante is about to go where his poetic master did not or could not. Dante, the Christian poet, goes where Virgil, the pagan poet, cannot Aeneas does not enter the walls of Dis. In fact, we're told that no force in heaven can open the gates of Dis. That will not be the truth in comedy. That may be the truth in Aeneid. And just stand here for a minute. 
just think about what's happened. We've come across here, we've come to a distinctly Virgilian landscape. The iron walls, the inconsolable ground, the deep moats, dis itself. This is an extraordinary, yes, the poet added some minarets, but this is an incredibly Virgilian landscape that we've come into. And it is here that Virgil stops. Well, Aeneas stops, but is it Virgil? And I just want to play that out just for a second. Let me have that for just a second. Is this the point at which Virgil's imagination fails him? And so Aeneas does not descend any further. The, the, the Sibyl says what's down there in Tartarus. The Sibyl explains the journey ahead, but the poet backs up. You know what? This poet, Dante, does not. And it strikes me that this passage is incredibly important because here we have the moment in which Dante is going to step beyond his poetic master because I'm not telling you it's not in this passage, but I'm not telling you anything, but they're going to get through those gates. You know it. We're at Canto 8. There's a, they've got to go all the way to Canto 34 to get through, through Inferno. There's a lot more of Inferno to come. They can't just sit here outside the gates and talk for the next however many Cantos. They have to go on. They have to pass through these gates. And this is the moment in which the poet is about to step beyond his master. The poem goes on. It was not until we had made a big circle that we came to a place where the boatman yelled, get out, this is the entrance. That's the last we hear of Phlegus. At the gate, I saw more than a thousand of those who'd fallen from heaven. Ah, fallen angels, our first demons. We've had Minos and Charon and Cerberus and we've had Phlegus, we've had Plutus. We've had all of these mythical classical figures. These are our first Christian demons. They're at the gate. More than a thousand of those who had fallen from heaven and they're belligerently crying out, who is this one who without death nonetheless traverses the kingdom of the dead people? Just like Filippo Argente, the first thing they notice is that the pilgrim is alive. Who is this one who without death nonetheless traverses the kingdom of the dead people? And my wise wise master made a signal as if he wanted to talk to them privately. Ow, that's horrible. What's about to happen is terrible. Watch this. They checked their disdain. They said, you come by yourself. Send that one away. The one who came into this realm so boldly. Let him go back along his foolish path. Stop right there. Per la folle strada. His foolish path. Remember back in Canto 2, line 35. What did Dante say was the real problem? When, for, when, when Dante laid out the reasons he shouldn't take this journey to Virgil in Canto II at the opening, and he said, I'm not Aeneas, I'm not Paul, I can't do this thing that they did go into the afterlife. Who am I to do all this? And I'm, besides, I'm afraid that it's all going to end up as fole. Let him go back along his foolish path, per la folle strada. See if he knows how. For you'll remain here, you who escorted him through this gloomy country. Why? Before to torture the pilgrim, so the pilgrim has to go on backwards alone, or because they believe Virgil is guilty of something of leading the pilgrim down here. I don't know. 
what I can say is foolish path. Remember that notion of I can't do this. It might all be folly. And I told you this word folly is going to come up over and over again about mad overreach. And later when we find Ulysses, yes, that Ulysses from Homer, when we find Ulysses down in hell, the root problem there is going to be his folly, his folly, his overreach, his desire to do too much. And here this word appears, per la folle strada, his foolish path. Why? <laughs> you know why. This is the moment he's leaving Virgil behind. This is the scary part. Okay, so you're writing a book. I, you know I'm going to go back to Henry James because I always go back to Henry James. You're writing a book. You're writing about, You're writing some novel. And you're, you know, Henry James is your great master. And you're carrying on. And I don't know. you got Jamesian characters right and left. <laughs> Wait, this is so ridiculous. But whatever. You've got Jamesian characters right and left. And you know there is going to come a point in which to complete your novel, you are going to have to leave James behind. You're going to have to find your own voice. You're going to have to say it in your own way, and you're going to have to stop relying on James to make the references for you. That's where we are. We're about to cross into the city of Dis, leaving behind that which Virgil did. We're leaving the Aeneid behind. Yes, there's going to be references to the Aeneid ahead and passages out of the Aeneid ahead, but the landscape will no longer be derived from the Aeneid, and so... The word fole comes up. This is a writer's insecurity. And what happens in this passage? He's left alone. They call Virgil over and and say, leave him. Let him go back. Let him just stay there. And in the next episode of this passage, we have this terrifying moment in which Virgil leaves him and goes and talks to them. Remember, he woke up in a dark wood. He was lost. He didn't know what to do. Virgil came to him. They had been walking through, well, what could be called a Virgilian landscape. Cerberus, Styx, Phlegus, <laughs> Karen. They've been doing this, dis, gates of iron, this whole bit up to here. And now comes the threat. Now they say, Yeah, leave him be. Let him go back. Let him find his own way back. Isn't that the writer's scary thing? You've relied on your master, your your teacher. Uh, You've done it yourself with your teacher for so long under her or his guidance. And suddenly you have to do it on your own. Isn't that the scary moment? And this is the moment in which the poet steps out and gives the lines. Think, reader, How I got weak in the knees at the sound of those cursed words. I believe I'd never make it back from there. This is dangerous stuff. They're saying, hey, Virgil, you stay here with us. Send that one back. He's on his own. The the poet is thinking, the poet is saying, oh my gosh, I got to go back without Virgil. Or more like, I got to go forward without Virgil. Let me say several words about this direct address. There are, I'm going to tell you, seven direct addresses to the reader in each 
of the Canticles. Seven in Inferno, seven in Purgatorio, and seven in Paradiso. There's a little controversy on that. Some people don't see two of the addresses in Paradiso as directly to the reader. I do. And I see a structure of seven direct addresses to the readers in each of the three Canticles of comedy. This is the first one. Think, reader. And it's at this point. It's at this moment in which the pilgrim is about to be divided from Virgil that the poet steps out and talks to me. That can't be a mistake. Also, notice what it says. It says, think, reader, pensalator, reader, not hearer. The poet is assuming the poem is being read, not recited. That's a big shift. Assuming that my poem is being read, not heard, not recited. It's not, um, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, which assumes that the text is being recited for an audience. Instead, this is addressed to a reader. I believe I'd never make it back from there. What is that? A lack of faith? I mean, there's a lot of commentators who have to dance this very hard. They say, oh, it can't be despair because, you know, only the damned can despair and the poet's not damned and the pilgrim's not damned. And so because they're not damned, this can't be despair and blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I kind of like a human. I kind of like it that this is scary stuff. And it's maybe it's not the formal theological despair, but it's bald fear bald fear that he's about to be separated from Virgil at the walls of Dis, which is the point at which Aeneas could go no farther in his descent into the afterlife. It just can't be mistakes, right? It's at this point that Virgil is blocked in the Aeneid, and it's at this point right here that Dante the Pilgrim is left alone, and maybe the poet is left alone because he has to make it up on his own from here on out, sort of. (laughs) Here comes Ovid and Lucan to the rescue, sort of. But nonetheless, the great teacher of Virgil, separation, Fear, anxiety, despair, and the folly. This bears in on the pilgrim. It bears in on the poet more specifically. The folly that you're trying to write this grand poem. And now comes the moment when you come to the place where Virgil in his poem could go no farther. Now comes the moment in which you got to step up. And play the game. And if you don't think as a writer, this is the moment where Foley, mad overreach, scary folly enters your brain. Wow, you haven't done it yet. Right? <laughs> this is that moment in which, I don't know, you have to step out on stage and sing without your teacher. This is the moment in which, uh, I don't know, you have to exhibit a canvas, an art canvas, without your instructors being present. This is the moment in which you have to do something that goes beyond your own teacher. This is the moment in which you can fall on your face because of crazy overreach. Or you can do what our poet does, which is reach down into his imagination, (laughs) set his spine, and go forward through the walls of Dis. But that will take us at least two more episodes of this podcast, Walking with Dante. So subscribe 
rate the podcast, go right to the bottom of the Apple podcast page. You'll see a way to rate it. A comment, a comment means everything. If you want to connect directly with me, hashtag walking with Dante on Twitter. I'll see that hashtag. You can follow me. I'll follow you. And we can continue to talk about uh, this poem, this magnificent poem on Twitter that I have grand conversations on Twitter and some on Facebook about the poem. I am so delighted to have those conversations. It, it makes me happier than almost anything else in my life right now. So subscribe to the podcast. Check it out. Come back. Virgil's going to walk on and leave our poor pilgrim and maybe our poet all by himself in front of the walls of Dis in the next episode of Walking with Tante. Mm-hmm.